0: Welcome to Making a Splash, the arts and culture podcast that celebrates swimming and the sea. I'm your host, Amber Butchart, a dress historian and keen but incredibly unaccomplished sea swimmer. I've just got back from a week working in Lancashire in glorious July sun and 28 degree heat, where we spent my time off hunting for rivers to cool down in. We found some beautiful spots, lush and green, from the previous British summer rain where we bobbed about in the slow current and shallow waters of the River Hodder. The following day we headed to the ominously named Valley of Desolation near Bolton Abbey in North Yorkshire where we hiked through woods to reach the most perfect, crystally cold cascading waterfall. I am a very bad swimmer. But with the pool only reaching waist height, everything about it was just perfect. The valley got its inauspicious name from a great storm in 1836, when strong winds, torrential rain, lightning and flash floods wreaked havoc that left many of the original oak trees uprooted. Evidence of this is now hard to find in the peaceful valley where the waterfall becomes a trickling stream, whispering over moss-covered stones. My first guest knows more than most about swimming in rivers, and in fact ponds. Journalist and author Nell Frizzell worked for a while as a lifeguard at the Hampstead Ladies Pond, which she wrote about for the Daunt Books anthology, At the Pond. Her second book, The Panic Years, with an accompanying podcast, was out earlier this year. Stay tuned as we discuss writing and reading about swimming, water rituals, the most unlikely creatures spotted in the Hampstead ponds, and why Lord Byron would be the ultimate swimming companion, despite being dangerous to know. Now, uh, you wrote about being a lifeguard at the Hampstead Ladies Pond for the Daunt Books anthology at the pond. How did your stint as a lifeguard come about?
1: Well, I'm one of those poacher turned gamekeeper lifeguards, in that I was a swimmer at the ponds for. Oh God! I don't know. Maybe four or five years, and I had swum all year round, and it's amazing that place is amazing in so many ways. I haven't actually been there since it got sort of redone. um the City of London have introduced some very contentious um charging fees and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, the magic about it was that it was incredibly busy in summer. We would sometimes get, like, 800 people coming through in a day. But if you go there in winter, and if you're lucky enough to be able to go at sort of 10 o'clock in the morning, sometimes you'd be the only person there. And because I... I would see the lifeguards and genuinely think of them as the luckiest women in London. By, uh, like, an immeasurable degree, it looked like the most perfect job. But I was supposedly working as a writer and you know meant to be busy all day so i couldn't take i didn't really think about it and then one day the most magnificent woman jane smith she came and tapped me on the shoulder and said would you ever be interested in being a lifeguard and I'm not a member of any private members' clubs, and I'm not a member of the mafia, and I've not ever been in like invited into m i five for a chat, but this was as good, I imagine as any one of those things um, and I just leapt at her and I said, "God yeah, absolutely i like I can't imagine anything better. I love bossing people around I've got a really loud voice <laughs> <laughs> i love I love policing other people's nudity, um please let me do it and so then i uh went and did a no, I signed up for a lifeguarding course and then found out very quickly afterwards that I was actually pregnant and had this funny thing where I had to <laughs> I had to phone up Ray, uh Ray the uh trainer, been doing it 35 years, and had to say, Ray, I'm really sorry, but I'm eight weeks pregnant and he was like, It's alright. Is it alright? I'm alright. And I was like, Oh, okay, yeah, then I'm fine with it too. And he was like, Great. You're not going to do anything. I can't remember what he said, but he was like, "You're not going to do anything untoward in the water," and I was like, "No." <laughs> like, like I was going to something. As well as if I was going to demand a water birth <laughs> <laughs> there and then, yeah, he was so nice about it. And so, just it's a funny thing with like that. He was, you know, a grey-haired man, cisgender, heterosexual man from the suburbs. I just expected him to be a bit more clunky about this than he was. And he was totally cool about it. And all my colleagues were totally cool about it. When I I said, I'm really sorry, to Sally, but I'm actually pregnant. And Nicola, who was the chief lifeguard when I was there, was like, yeah, I I carried on until I was about seven months. And I was like, oh, okay, So, yeah, I I did my training in the uh, first trimester, which I don't know how much people remember of it, but I was just throwing up all the time. And then uh, started work in the kind of April. So I had a run up before it got really busy. So that's a very, that's the sort of very convoluted um, story of how I became not a mafioso, but uh, <laughs> women's, a women's, again with Ladies Pond lifeguard, which is basically is good.
0: And did you ever ask Jane Smith what she looks for in a, in a lifeguard? Like why you got the tap on the shoulder? No, but I did start to
1: see because we were always sort of recruiting particularly because they need loads of people in the summer because a lot of those jobs are casual at least they were when i was doing it this was you know 2016 and 17 so a while ago now you were always sort of looking around for people who might be able to do a couple of days a week or a couple of hours because you can only do so, you can only do so long and so they need people to cover the shifts and you needed back then and i don't know if the rules are the same One lifeguard per 20 swimmers, to get very technical. So if you're going to have all those people in the water, you need a lot of women on canoes and chairs watching. Um, and I did start to notice then from the other side of the <laughs> from the other side of the diving board what they were looking for. You could tell the kind of people that they would have their eye on, and they're all quite headmistressy, <laughs> fit, good swimmers um, with loud voices. Basically, they were, you know, and obviously, you know, there was a real real desire and push from all of us, I think, to get a slightly more representative group of people uh, lifeguarding because. It's not as much as, this is the majority of swimmers, it's not only frequented by sort of middle-class white women in their 30s, although that is a lot of them. um, We did want to have a slightly broader base of lifeguards. and We did have quite an international group, actually. It was really lovely when I was working there. And you build up this sort of really strange... I don't even know if sister, yes, it is sisterhood because you all complain about your messy bedroom in the back and you all like <laughs> borrow each other's towels and um, steal each other's tea bags. Um, but also, there is something magic about those hours and hours and hours that we would spend on deck just chatting, you know. And I feel like I got to know loads of them quite well. But in this, a bit, you know, when you're standing. I'm not a driver, but from what I when you're driving, you're sitting next to someone and looking out front. That's a lot of what being a lifeguard is. You're sort of close but not staring into each other's eyes because then you'd miss all the people having asthma attacks. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, there are often swimming spots that take on really mythic proportions. And the tidal pool that I swim in, for example, Mm. is, you know, the people who swim there regularly, myself included, to be fair, treat it as an almost religious experience. And it's the same with regular swimmers at the Hampstead Ponds as well. Why do you think that these bodies of water inspire such devotion?
1: Well, not because I made them all touch my toes before I got into the water, but I would have quite (laughs) liked to introduce that. A little bit of deification. Um, I think it's a really natural human instinct. And I'm really struck, you know, if you've been lucky enough to travel, you do see all over the world people pouring pouring love and beauty and attention onto objects, whether that is a, a lingam in India or a shrine in the Mediterranean or... You know, if you go to if you're lucky enough to go to the sort of Pacific Islands like I have, you do see within nature all of this. You know, people who have for hundreds of years made a sort of ritualistic practice around something and water is so frequently part of it. You can't argue, you know, it's there in it's there in like the ancient Greek texts is there in the Bible that like we've been pouring water onto each other's foreheads for thousands of years. Um, there's also this thing that people used to say a lot when i was working at the ponds which is that the ponds can hold it and um there's a real really strong connection between grief and water i've often wanted to do a pro i've had a project in my head for years called the evaporation of grief which is about this sort of very um i think poignant relationship that people have where either they want to be submerged and have their sort of internal their internal grief kind of blanked out or matched by a physical sensation of the same magnitude. Also to see the passing of water from state to state is a great reminder of death and rebirth and all of those kind of things. And certainly a lot of women would talk about whatever they were feeling when they would get into the pond. It felt like the pond would hold that feeling for them temporarily. And it was like sloughing off whatever it was, whether it was anxiety or grief or heartbreak or oh, you know, even something fairly prosaic like the stress of work that could be held by the pond and then you'd get out and it would sort of settle back on your shoulders after a couple of hours. But yeah, I think it's fundamental. I think in the same way, you know, I have a small child now and you watch him, the way he treats certain... I I used to watch him like pick up snail shells and put them on top, very deliberately on top of tree stumps and that's shrine making, you know, you see that in places place like Papa Westray in the Orkneys, like we've been doing that for thousands of years. I also think we've probably been dipping our children and our loved ones in water for as long.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and that, you know, the ponds, the ponds will hold it. That's so lovely. And it's certainly definitely it's that sort of redemptive quality I think that gets people coming back to the tidal pool where I am again and again and again as well yeah. that idea that after a long day after literally anything you get in and you feel a little bit better even if it's just temporary <laughs> you just feel a bit better
1: yeah yeah and then you c- climb out and there's also something the sort of stripping of vanity you climb out and in the case of the ponds you would have like sc- a big scummy beard <laughs> and your hair would be like lank and maybe you'd have duck shit on your foot and I think you know with the tidal pools there's you know always the likelihood that you're going to have like a seaweed giant bikini line that's sort yeah. of just you know clung to your leg or that you're going to scratch your knee or that you know it's there is a sort of moment of forget being in your body and forgetting about the judgment of your body that I think is really magic about those places particularly as women because we're so rarely given that kind of
0: Freedom in our bodies in a funny way mm, mm-hmm. I completely agree I completely agree what's the most unlikely creature that you saw in the ponds during your time as a lifeguard
1: oh my god well um <laughs> there was a very big fish that got called carol but she was she was for a while called dm as in carpe DM, because she was a very big very old carp nice that had come up to the top and um she terrified the life out of so many swimmers. It was absolutely brilliant. Someone thought that she, it was a motorbike tire that someone had like driven a motorbike. They were absolutely convinced. Came up, reported this, wanted me to phone the constabulary. Someone had driven in with a motorbike overnight, and there was a you know bit of it had floated at to the top. People thought it was sharks. People thought it was a monster. And you know it was just this very. And we used to we had a snorkel that we'd sometimes use for cleaning the boats and stuff. And one, a couple of the lifeguards sort of follow her around, seeing what she was doing. And it was like a teeny, tiny women's pond basking shark. She'd just go along, sort of blubbing along. And then unfortunately, of course, um, Carol was no more. And that's why they come up to the top and they're kind of struggling to breathe and they need more oxygen. Um, so she had a very, uh, sort of very poignant Viking funeral where she was putting a plastic bag in the bin. I'm <laughs> 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 probably not meant to have told you that. But... I think the strangest creature that was ever seen was probably the giant retriculated python that um, one of the lifeguards found under a bush. Wow. It had obviously, f- it had probably been dumped by someone who bought an exotic pet that they couldn't look after. And it had gone to sort of see- make a nest and it just got too cold. Um, so, and it was pretty big it could have it could have certainly um given someone a shock i don't think it would have done any, it would have been devenomed and everything but it would have given you an, a hell of a fright if oh you'd seen God. it there absolutely terrible. but it was magic like we used to lifeguard standing on paddle boards and i don't know if you've ever been on a paddle board i imagine you have but you have a view like a perspective on the water that you never get when you're swimming like you can look down and i'd see these shoals of like roach going past with these their beautiful red fins and you know you'd see just magic swan muscles that are easily as big as your palm that would cleanse all this water every litres and litres of water every day and yeah lovely things lots of moorhens lots of um and then a very dangerous heron that used to stalk all the chicks and we were in a sort of ridiculous like the worst kind of paternalistic sort of (laughs) bit of fight with nature where we would try and get all the seagulls and herons and everything off the baby chicks which is I don't know how nature photo- like n- wildlife photographers do it because we meant to just let nature take its course <laughs> but we would be throwing <laughs> throwing like you know throwing bits of bread or stones at the seagulls try and keep them away or just shouting get off
0: them they're their babies <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh, I love what you wrote also about learning to read the weather as well. That was fantastic. Now, is yeah. that a skill that has stayed with you? Or is it only relevant for that particular spot in Hampstead? And could, can you just explain how you could read that weather?
1: Yeah, well, I don't do it as much as I used to, but there used to. there was a thing that Jane, again, explained to me, which was that if you saw two layers of cloud... So, if you'd get sort of fluffyish clouds and then a thinner layer higher, higher high above it, that meant that there were two weather fronts meeting. And that would probably mean that it, the weather would turn within the next sort of hour or so and it would start to rain. I did get really good at reading all sorts of things. Like you would feel that if there was going to be a storm that day, you would, like, you know, we would be standing in brilliant blue sunshine and we'd all be saying, yeah, probably about three, there'll be a storm. <laughs> no one would believe us but you could do that and um you would taste when the weather changed direction when the wind had changed direction that was really interesting because it would either be coming over the houses or it would be coming over the heath and you could smell and taste the difference
0: that's remarkable
1: and I got very interested in mist because mist is this amazing thing particularly in that sort of changing of seasons where you would get the air being a different temperature to the water on the ground and so if it was particularly cold or if it was particularly cold in the air, you'd get lots of winter mist, which is fantastic, coming off ice. Um, but now in the summer, you'll get it too, where overnight the temperature in the air drops, but the heat is retained in the rivers or ponds or even marshland. And you get this beautiful sort of eerie mist over everything. And that, that was probably some of my favourite times at the pond. Not, I obviously love the swimmers, but there was something magic about coming down the path and seeing it all coated in mist and just birds and the occasional flash of blue from a kingfisher and knowing you had it all to yourself for, you know, 20 minutes was magic.
0: Oh, totally magic. Oh, glorious. Your book, The Panic Years, was out this year with an accompanying podcast as well. Can you tell me about your panic years and did you ever mm. use swimming as a means of quelling the panic?
1: You're so kind to ask me about this. Um, yes, it did play, it played a quite a pivotal role. Basically, my definition of the panic years is that I think we have had for a, for a fairly long time now, these periods of physiological and emotional transformation that we give a name to, i.e. we have a period of time that we call adolescence and then within that we have a physiological change that we call puberty. And then we have later in life a period of time that we call middle age. And within that, we have a physiological transformation that we call the menopause. But I noticed at 28, when I'd just come out of a long-term relationship, and I had been made redundant, and I was sleeping with some incredibly ill-advised men, (laughs) and I was um, sort of wondering where all the security, all the security in my life had disappeared to. And I looked around and realised that there was this sort of odd flux everywhere that people were either getting married, having babies, buying houses, getting promotions, or they were moving to Brazil, retraining, redefining their own identity in some significant way. And so 28 was like a very odd time. And when I got to 32 and I fell pregnant fell pregnant slipped over landed on a penis and fell <laughs> pregnant i um i looked back and realized that so much of that what had felt like a kind of do or die final roll of the dice was really provoked by this question of whether or not you're going to have a child or want to have a child and so i wanted to kind of define this period that i think is a physiological change you either you come out of it either a parent someone who is not going to have biological children or someone who is trying to either have biological children or become a parent in a different way. And so I call that transformation the flux because it really did feel like something, you know, the definition of flux is the movement in in the landscape. It's the movement of water from one, like a watershed. So like when a lake breaches, the flux means it goes down into streams. In the body, it is the elimination of something. And in your bones, it's the kind of gap between one, but sort of, it's the gap between bones, it's called the flux. And so I, I was like, this is, you know, I wanted to define that. But I also wanted to define the period because this wasn't unique to me. Everyone I knew had undergone something, you know, normally in their sort of late 20s, early 30s, but sometimes earlier, sometimes later, people into their 40s. And so I'd come up with all these terms and I was really struggling with, you know, I wanted to call it something fairly pretentious or something that had a sort of academic ring to it. And then my brilliant agent was like, oh, yeah, the panic years. And I was like, yeah, it's the panic years. (laughs) Um, And I think the, the role that swimming had in that was really fundamental because in that transition from going from heartbroken, fairly lost, fairly transitory or sort of untethered, I then took, I I realised that because I didn't have any of the security that I'd I'd had up until that point, I could say yes to absolutely anything that came my way. And in fact, it was less of a psychological burden if I just said yes to everything, because then I didn't have to think about whether it was good or not. (laughs) So, I said yes to every invitation, every commission, every party, every day. I said yes to everything for a while. And one of those things probably was swimming, that I would just start, I started swimming with real force. And that same thing of wanting to rediscover my body. And I grew up in a town, you know, defined by a river. And it had always been part of my, you know, one of my earliest memories is my dad holding my wrists and dunking me into these icy icy lakeland pools um that were like just just off ice melt so i knew that water was really fundamental to who i was and i don't know if you've ever had this but after a big breakup i remember someone saying to me so what what do you like and i was like i have no idea for the last six years, what I like has been so tied up with what they like and what I do is tied up with what they want to do and who we know is tied up with who they know. You know, everything had been a kind of joint effort in a lovely way. Like, that's that's what a healthy, interdependent relationship is. But I, I remember saying to them, sort of in a faltering voice, I like being outside. <laughs> and so um, swimming was my way of being outside. And after... A few months, and heart, you know, heartbreak takes a long time. I remember waking up one morning, and I had like s- the slight smell of pondweed in my hair, and I had that feeling when it's like you've remembered a snatch of a song that you hadn't heard for years, or you can smell someone's, you can smell like your granny's perfume, or there's a particular light that in the room that reminds you of something. It's really evocative, and I was like there's something reminding me. What is it? What is it? I'm having a real flashback to something. And I was like, oh, it's me. This is who I am. I'm remembering what I'm like. And this is a big part of it. And I went off to New Zealand um, because my dad is from New Zealand. And I cycled around there and swam a lot. And I went on some truly appalling dates with near strangers where I'm not not a natural dater. So I'd always just say... I'd meet someone, cop off with them, because and that's the old fish, and I, you know. <laughs> One of the great things of British culture that I think we should not give over to sort of the slightly more puritanical American model is dating. I loved when British dating meant you go out, you get shit-faced, you shag someone, <laughs> and then you get to know each other and see <laughs> if you want to spend more time together. Mm. So I would do that, and then the getting to know them, I was always suggesting that we went, either went camping or went to the sea because I just thought well if they don't want to do either of those things then I'm not going to want to spend time with them. So all these poor men that I would drag into like rivers and the sea and up mountains and through woods because I kind of wanted to check that we were on the level and most of the time I'd say apart from my partner none of them were. <laughs> It never truly worked. Oh, and I wanted to talk to you about this. I don't know if you've ever had a romantic sort of um, a, a date in the sea or been in the sea with someone that you're sort of having a flirtation with, but... There is nothing, there's no more clear clarion sign of whether you really fancy someone than if they have a little bit of snot coming out of their (laughs) nose, which everyone (laughs) gets when you're swimming. Like that, that's, you know, that's what happens. It's the dispersal of water and the pressure and all of that kind of stuff. But looking at someone who up until that point you thought was quite handsome and they have a bit of snot coming out of their nose, boom, you know, you know whether you want to (laughs) be with them or not. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, my partner. I'm with now we've been together a really long time about 15 years since we were in our mid-20s and wow. yeah and he actually couldn't swim when I met him um fascinating he grew up on an estate embarking and learning to swim was just not on the agenda although weirdly he told me recently they did have sailing lessons oh yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. bizarrely
0: but no swimming um which is sort of a running before you can walk scenario, I think. But anyway, that's interesting. my the partner
1: that I break up with at the beginning of the panic years. He couldn't swim either because he was epileptic, um, and so he was quite. He he became my sort of official towel holder for six years. He would just stand there when I was swimming. But my current partner couldn't ride a bike when we got together, and he. Uh, this is very sweet. He secretly went off to um spin classes to try and get more confident on a bike and and learned to ride a bike when we got together
0: that's adorable and then,
1: and then after about two months, we cycled across Ireland together. <laughs> Wow. in at the deep end yeah
0: yeah Gosh, he really came on and leaps and bounds that's that's incredible that's amazing um so I actually taught my partner to swim which is also hilarious because I'm an awful swimmer that's so romantic I love being in the water but I um I can barely, you know I can move in the water I can float I can I can move around but I'm not really I can't really swim by any like proper definition of the word swim so I taught him to swim so he's now also an awful swimmer. So we just like get in lots of water together and are just awful together. <laughs> That's so nice. I um
1: I also think there's a magic time, I, and I need to give a name to this. But you know, there's a period after you meet someone when you're both still bringing your A game and you'll both do the things that each other love. Yeah. And you, you're not quite the point where you can say, actually, this is not for me. We went to Berlin. And we had we were barely even together at that point. Like we'd, I think we'd been on like three dates, and then we went to Berlin together. And it was December. Berlin's quite a cold place. And uh we went to Krumalanka and I was like, "I'm going to go for a swim," and he was like, "Me too." And I was like, "That's incredible." And he got in, and he did swim. And subsequently, I said, "Like, how was it?" And he was like, "Absolutely never again. It was awful." <laughs> He would never, never do that now. But there's like a magical time. And I do think if you are falling in love with someone, go and do all of that stuff now. Because in a few months time, when you are settled into your intimacy with each other, you're not going to have the compulsion to do stuff like that anymore anymore. So, yeah, get it, not get it while it's hot, but like, push, push them while you can. <laughs>
0: get it while it's cold.
1: Get it while it's cold. Yeah. Get it while it's painfully, painfully cold. Yeah.
0: <laughs> now, you've written, speaking of the cold, you've written prolifically about cold water swimming. But do you also read about swimming?
1: It's a great question. I think I am really drawn to watery people, big wet people. But I... I'm almost shy of other people's writing about swimming as an activity because I think it's a really personal relationship you have. It's almost like reading someone else's book about raising their child or the, the way they have sex or the way they cook. Like, it's it's probably so individual to each person that I, I'm i not sure... I, I love reading about other people's experiences, but I am... Um, I'm sort of cautious about anyone else's view colouring mine, if that makes sense. So I've loved, um, Jessica J. Lee wrote this beautiful book called Turning, uh, a memoir of swimming in um, all the 52 lakes in Brandenburg and Berlin, which I loved. Charlotte Runsey's book, Salt on Her Tongue, which is all about sort of women in the sea, particularly, and the sort of historical and mythological history of that relationship, I loved. Iris Murdoch's Under the Net has the best swimming scene I've ever read where a group of sort of drunk, not children, people in their early 20s go down to one of those weird, stony slightly smelly beaches on the Thames and they all take their clothes off and slip into the kind of the dark, the the sort of silvery Thames at night and have a swim. And I remember reading that as a student up in Leeds and just thinking, oh my God, like the future is going to be wonderful. (laughs) And I did swim in the Thames, and it wasn't like that, but it was kind of magic in other ways. I swam at Hammersmith with the artist Amy Sharrock, so I'm sure you know, oh, yeah. who did the Museum of Water. And um, we swam, because the, the tide is so strong in the Thames, there's this argument that the Thames is actually a coastal because it still has such a tidal pull, that you can only swim particular times a day, and we swam up, and as the tide turned, we had, tide turned, we had to turn back and swim back. And there was this brilliant moment. You're swimming along, seeing like City of London parking meters and people's front doors. And like, it's really like, like bridges, red buses, like you're in the city, but you're swimming. It feels so transgressive and weird. As I was swimming, along, I was thinking, God, this, this river is why Queen Elizabeth was here it's why the romans were here this is like so ancient and so significant to my culture and history and it's you know wordsworth stood on that that bridge there and looked out on where we are and then um a crisp packet swam into my face and then <laughs> as we turned and i got a pot plant on my hand but as we turned around i noticed that all the men that i had been swimming with the big mixed group started to do front crawl and up until that point everyone had been doing breaststroke and I was like oh oh this is a race and I'm not I'm not in any way superstitious like this or believe in astrology particularly but I was born in the year of the rat and something very ratty overtook me that day and I was like (laughs) oh well if this is a race I'm gonna show them that I'm faster than them and these were like big built men in like speedo racing goggles but I just went for it and put my head under water and sort of did my best front crawl like a knife back through to where we started and then I got to where we were getting out the kind of pontoon bit and realized oh like I just wasted this is my one swim in the Thames possibly for months and I just missed it all by trying to beat everyone and they were like meters behind me yes I won but (laughs) I'd also completely lost the point (laughs) Something, it's like it's like going to you know a beautiful magical lake and just keeping your eyes closed. Why did I do it anyway? Sorry, that was a real tangent, but it's one of my favorite swimming stories about when your feminist credentials actually overwhelm your aesthetic appreciation
0: <laughs> of your own
1: life. I love
0: it, I love it. I'd love to swim in part of the Thames like that where it's actually properly you it's know, in so the city. Weird. There's a bit yeah. in, I guess it's not technically the Thames, but there's an area in Docklands you can swim in, which yeah. I'm so keen to do. I've not yet Shadow done well it. Basin. Yeah. yeah, and I really would love to do it because just the idea of swimming and just looking up and seeing like Canary Wharf and stuff, I just think yeah. it would be magical, really amazing. It feels
1: amazing. incredibly illicit, I, or it still does to me. Getting into any river, particularly a, a, an urban river, feels really transgressive and naughty and kind of dirty, but also magical.
0: So good, so good. We used to, I grew up on the coast, um, and we used to camp on the beach when I was a teenager, and we would sometimes go skinny dipping at night, and I was in an area where there was phosphorescence, bioluminescence in the water. So you would put your arm through and it would just, like, tiny little stars.
1: Paint the sea, paint the sea fluorescent, how beautiful. I was... When I was 20, let's say five, I went on holiday to France with my three housemates at the time and none of them had ever swum naked I was so horrified I made them take off their swimming costumes there and then in the middle of the lake and hold them <laughs> for them I was like you can't how have you how have you got to 25 like you've you've probably at this you've like paid national insurance you've probably got a washing machine you've definitely got an oyster card like why are you why have you never swum naked what what have you been doing with your life yeah I couldn't believe it
0: that's um, that's <laughs> remarkable especially in France come on my god yeah <laughs> I think it's a rite of passage Well, you've clearly been swimming for a very long time. You're a very, very good swimmer. When did you learn to swim? I
1: learned to swim at school. I think like most people, I um, went to ferry pool uh, off the Marston Ferry Road in Oxford, and I had a really mean but brilliant swimming teacher who was attached to the leisure centre. None of our school teachers taught us. It was this woman who had, I can still remember, it, like quite a wet-look perm. This would have been the early 90s. Uh-huh. And she had sliders. She would have been very cool now. And um, one of those really... Um, that that kind of tan that looks really careworn, like someone spend, who spend a lot of time outside, and she, I, we were, I was terrified of her, I'm much more scared of her than varicose, which was the other great threat of the <laughs> early nineties, um, and. I suppose I'd been in water a lot as a child, so I was quite confident and I think I picked up strokes fairly easily.
0: And you have a spot now that you swim out really, really regularly, uh, every day, Mm. I think, in fact, and you swim with your son a lot now as well, but did pregnancy or has motherhood changed your relationship with swimming or where you swim in any way?
1: I think it has taught me more viscerally than anything else in my life That time is cyclical, not linear, because I so many times look down at this like curly, yellow haired child and see myself as a child. Like, I will now hold him by the wrists and dunk him into those frozen Lakeland pools. And I see him climbing up little waterfalls and wading out. I mean, he'll wade out to his neck in the Thames with no care at all and I just see myself it's magic I you know and not in a narcissistic way I didn't just have a child so it would be a little bit like me um but there is something I think truly profound as a parent at looking at your child in a state of joy in a situation that you find joy yourself it's just incredible it's an incredible thing And I know how it feels to be in his body. And I know he, you know, that there's something there about the coming together of us that he relies on me to keep him safe. And so he trusts my body as a kind of survival but I also can imagine myself into his body and it's pure freedom and pure joy that he's experiencing in those moments. Um, and so I would take him in the water every day. And he also, I mean, I don't take him in in the winter, but he wants to, like he really wants to go in and I actually can't be asked to dress and undress both of us. In the, you know, there's so many layers. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. uh, the idea of getting someone who's only just continent in and out of like tights and trousers and a snowsuit in the middle of January so he can have a dip I just can't be asked, but he would very happily do it and my friend Amy Liptrot actually I remember when our sons were quite small I went up to visit her and we swam in the snow together and I remember her telling me that in certain areas of, of Russia in particular communities they cut a hole in the ice and dunk their very small children into the frozen water as a kind of rite of passage and we did joke about doing it to our boys together but we didn't when you say one of my earliest swims, in my mother's womb, like the story is that we were in Cornwall and she must have been about six or seven months pregnant. She sort of waded out into the sea and as the sea breached her belly, I went totally nuts and I was like rolling around in there, like kicking seven shades of shit out of her ribs, <laughs> purely like lo- loving the feeling of being in, in the sea before I'd even come out. Um, so I used to joke that, that her uterus was my first kind of swim. The swim down her birth canal was probably my <laughs> first swim. Um, and then uh, I've I've really liked it ever since. And now my son was born into water, so he pretty much swam out and, and has loved it ever since. So it's, yeah, it's one of the few things, because he's quite, you know, he's a challenging person. But it's one of the moments where I, I truly love his company.
0: <laughs> oh that's <laughs> in water. so lovely. And you swim in a river in in Oxford near yeah. near where
1: you I live. Re- I swim in the dirty old bloody Thames. And oh, uh, Thames. But we're, we're, yeah it's just the old Thames. It's called slightly unfortunately the Isis in this part of the world. So my my middle school was the Isis middle school which looks very funny <laughs> on my CV now. Yeah. <laughs> I studied with Isis for 3 years. No, 6 years, however long you're in middle school. Um and there's the Charwell and the Isis, and they, the bit of land between those two rivers is called Mesopotamia, <laughs> which is particularly <laughs> weird. Yeah, Oxford is very biblical in a fun, like it's really up its own bum. There's an area of Oxford known as Jericho, there's Mesopotamia, there's the Isis, like <laughs> so they really want to be sort of a classical place. But where we often go swimming in Port Meadow, there are cows and horses grazing, just sort of wild however you want to define that word and it always makes me think of the fact that it's ox ford as in the bit of the thames that gets shallow enough that you can ford it with an ox you can walk over Um, and that's still happening and that's magic to me that you know what would it be a thousand years later there's still ox or cows wandering in and out of the stream in and out of the river
0: That's incredible and just speaks to that, you know, what you were saying earlier about rivers and history and how, Mm. uh, you know, the history of humanity is so intertwined with rivers and with these types of bodies of water. Would you always choose a river to swim in?
1: It's interesting, yeah. I think about that a lot. Sea, river, you know, lakes. Absolutely not lakes. God, they're scary. (laughs) They're so scary. Um, (laughs) They're so deep. Is it Ellswater or Wastwater? One of them where they say it's as deep as the mountains around it are high. Gosh, I know, terrifying. And the sea is magic, but my heart absolutely belongs to rivers. God, yeah. And you know, I'm sure you know this. The binary between a stream and a river is the point at which you can walk over it so if you can step across it it's a stream if you can't step across it it's a river I
0: did not know um, that that's interesting and that's mm.
1: uh, oh here's two good nature facts that's one of them and brackish is the place where the sweet water i.e the fresh water meets the salt water in the sea and then it's known as brackish water which i love as well and so that sort of liminal bit between the stream and a river where it's just too broad for you to really step across it but it's and you can swim in it Um, but it's still small and maybe has a bit of current to it. That's my favourite place to swim, I think.
0: Lovely. Well, and that is a conceptual, I suppose, place to swim. Where is your literal favourite place that you've ever swum?
1: I'm sure, like everyone else on your podcast, probably, I'm going to give you my second favourite because I can't tell you my first favourite because then everyone will go there. (laughs) Is that really me? Um, (laughs) I think probably the best place... The best place I've ever swum at the beginning of the Watkins path, as you walk up Snowdon, there's some beautiful waterfalls and that's probably the best place I've ever swum. But if anyone goes there, please take your rubbish.
0: (laughs) 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 I mean, I think we should add, if anyone goes anywhere, please take your rubbish.
1: Yeah, yeah. Please take your rubbish. And I don't I don't want to sound like, you know, some boring local counsellor, but I don't really understand why you would go to the effort of going somewhere beautiful and making it ugly.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Who would be your ideal swimming companion, real or imaginary, dead or alive?
1: Lord Byron. I'd have a crack at Byron. I'd love to go for a swim with him. And I think it would be a really dangerous combination. I think I'd probably really fall for him and he'd probably break my heart. <laughs> but my God, like that dangerous beauty, that dark haired dangerous beauty and such genius and incredible sexual chemistry they seem to have with everybody, man, woman and child.
0: And probably um, animal as well, to be fair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um I'd I'd go for a swim with him and you know, he's he had form. He swam across the where the I want not say the Menai Plants, Straits, that's it? in Wales. Hells Yeah, Plants. yeah. yeah um I think that would be magic to go for a swim with him and I probably the same thing would happen that happened in the Thames where I'd probably just put my head down and front crawl him and completely <laughs> miss my opportunity to get off with
0: him because I'd be like I'll show you Byron I'm a better swimmer than you um yeah that would be a fantastic pairing because he was a really good swimmer wasn't he and in many ways like, incredible felt swimmer more comfortable in the water than he did on the land yeah. yeah I would like to be a fly on the wall or I guess a fish in the sea while that happened
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think it could be great it could be great
0: well if you could swim anywhere in the world with or without Lord Byron that you haven't yet swum where would it be
1: I would love for all that I've said my heart belongs to rivers and streams which is true I would love to swim between the islands of Col and Tyree in the Hebrides because I went there with my friend Joe C. Long to do some gigs once. And it was such a magic place. And they say that people have done it, but we didn't do it. And I would love to go back and swim between there. Or to swim between some of the Faroe Islands. Because I, I was very lucky I got sent to the Faroe's by the Guardian. And it's a magic place. And the swimming there was incredible. And I think there's something for me about swimming from an island to another island that feels... Brilliant. F- a few times in my life, I have cycled to the edge of the country, i.e., I've cycled to the coast from wherever I was living. And that feeling that you're sort of stepping off the map into the unknown, to do that and then to transport your body purely th- through your own energy and ability to another place with another community, culture, name, I think is magic. So to go from cult to dire, even though there's, you know, there both small Hebridean islands, you would feel like you had made a journey. And I think that's there's something magic about that.
0: Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Nell for being such a fantastic guest. Head to the episode details to find links to her books At the Pond and The Panic Years, as well as her podcast of the same name. If you've enjoyed this, please do rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can find out more about future guests at my Instagram page, at Amber Butchard. See you next time on Making a Splash.